Hello, and welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm talking to Dr. Miley Hutterer about architecture and religious tolerance. Dr. Hutterer earned her PhD from New York University and is now assistant professor of the history of art and architecture in the College of Design at the University of Oregon. Her article, Architectural Design as an Expression of Religious Tolerance, The Case of St. Madeline in Montargis, was published in the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians in 2017. Well, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Hutterer. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited. So your article examines the construction of the Church of St. Madeleine in Montargis, France, during the 16th century wars of religion. And so I I thought we might start by giving our listeners some historical context uh, for this period. Maybe we could start by having you tell us a little bit about what the wars of religion were. Absolutely. So first, I want to preface this by saying that I am not a historian of religion, and I'm not a political historian, right? I'm an art historian. So I am looking at the religious and political context of France, and particularly of Montargis in this period, as a lens through which I interpret the architecture of St. Madeleine, which is my primary object of inquiry. And I say that just because there are many, many people out there in the world that have more expertise about this, um, this period than I do. But because I'm I'm really involved in contextualizing the architecture, it absolutely makes sense to start here. Um, so the Wars of Religion is a period of violent conflict between French Protestants, known as Huguenots, and Roman Catholics. It lasts from about 1562 to 1598, so 36 years. And the Huguenots are French Protestants, mostly from northern France, who follow the Reformed tradition primarily as articulated by John Calvin. So during this 36-year period, there are several wars that occur, several instances or periods, shorter periods of violence. The most intense of these is probably the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, which happened on August 24-25 in 1572. This was a wave of Catholic mob violence against the Huguenots that starts in Paris and then in the coming days, subsequent days and weeks, spreads throughout France to the other urban centers and to the countryside. Modern estimates of the numbers of Huguenots killed vary widely, and I've seen estimates from everywhere from 5,000 to 70,000 people killed um, during these several weeks in 1572. Traditionally, St. Bartholomew's Day was believed to have been instigated by the Queen Catherine de' Medici, and it followed on the heels of the wedding of the king's sister, Margaret, to the Protestant Henry III of Navarre. Henry III will become the future King Henry IV of France. And I think that's an important thing to note because this religious conflict is coinciding with a dynastic power struggle for the French throne following the death of Henry II in 1559. So Henry II was married to Catherine de' Medici, who initially is relatively tolerant towards these um, Protestants, the Huguenots, and over the course of her regency, she becomes increasingly um, hardened in her Catholic views. Um, Henry II and Catherine had three sons who would become 
king of France, and these are the last of the Valois kings, Francis II, Charles IX, and Henry III. None of them has a particularly successful reign. They're all um, relatively impotent kings. And so following the death of the last of these sons, you then have a um, struggle between different different lineages within France and the Protestant and the Catholic sides of these struggles have a lot to do with the instances of violence that are happening throughout France. So how did these wars of religion affect life and and maybe especially religious life in uh, Montargis? Montargis is a really interesting place, a really interesting situation as far as I could tell in the course of my research. So I am particularly interested in Montargis during a period when René of France is the um, is the lord of this area, and René um, is the youngest surviving child of the French king Louis the Twelfth and Anne of Brittany. So she is the aunt of Henry the Second, who dies and then whose death precipitates this kind of uh, struggle for secession. Right. So she is royal herself. Um, but she was a practicing Calvinist, and she raised her daughters uh, as Calvinist. And this gets her into some trouble. So she's married to the Duke of Ferrara, Ercole d'Este, and he is Catholic, right? He's in Italy. He's a staunch Catholic, and she is practicing this Reformed religion, right? So he actually has her arrested as a heretic in the 1550s, and in order for her to be able to see her children again, um, she's pressured into renouncing the, the Reformed religion, and she does so. But as far as we can tell, in fact, we have very good evidence, I think, that she continues um, to practice. Uh, her reformed uh, ideology privately, and she continues to correspond with John Calvin until his death in 15, I think it's 1564. So she herself is really privately a Protestant, although her relationship to the French crown often necessitates that she have a neutral or a public Catholic persona, right? So she is somewhat conflicted. And I should also say that the historian Charmarie um, Jenkins Blaisdell uh, has done a lot of work on, uh, on on Renee, and that my scholarship really relies on her publications to understand uh, Renee's personality. So her husband, the Duke of Ferrara, dies in 1559, and in 1560, Renee takes up residence in Montargis. Uh, whose jurisdiction she received as part of her dowry from Francois I, right? So she's set up in Montargis. And she really, as far as I can tell from um, other the work of other scholars, really likes to uh, be in Montargis because here she's able to have some degree of sovereignty and some degree of freedom to continue to practice religion as she wants to, and also to be able to practice lordship. Right. Because she she was a member of the royal family. Right. And she wanted to be able to have, I think, that experience of ruling. Right. Which was otherwise restricted to her because of her gender. And so she she primarily lives in Montargis. Uh, she spends more time there than she does in the courts. And while she's at Montargis, she harbors Protestants who had fled Paris at her chateau, right? So she really makes her chateau a uh, safe 
haven for Protestants who would be Huguenots who would be persecuted elsewhere in France. When she initially comes to Montargis, the Huguenots around her and her herself, they try to use the, the primary church, uh, St. Madeline, as a place for Protestant worship. And the local population of the town, which remains Catholic during her period of lordship, really strongly resist this. Right. So initially in the first um, decade or so of her residence at Montargis, there is um, some significant conflict between René and the local citizenry. And this explodes really in um, 1562 when the Protestants who had been asked not to um, use the church anymore and Renee, who had initially agreed not to use the church anymore, then changes her mind. The Catholic uh, citizenry, they set up guards, the Protestants forced their way in any way. Right. And so we have this incident in um, 1562 where the church is looted, where there's um, some rioting and Renee has to um, go to uh, Orléans and ask for military assistance to put down the rebellion. And this results in some executions of some of the Catholics. And depending on whether you read the Protestant accounts of this event or the Catholic account of this event, the degree of violence varies. Right. And also Renee's uh, allegiances, uh, Renee's response also seems to be a little bit fluid, depending on which account you're reading. Right. After this, after this kind of explosion of violence and particularly after 1567, it appears that Renee really tries to maintain a more neutral stance in Montargis. So she really wants to have her cake and eat it too, to use maybe a metaphor more appropriate to Marie Antoinette than to Renée de France, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll use it anyway. So she really tries to appease Catherine de Medici. She tries to appease her Catholic relatives, which includes, by the way, her son-in-law, who is a very militant, um, very militant Catholic. At the same time, she also tries to appease John Calvin. So we have her really threading a very thin needle, walking a very thin line. And I think that the rebuilding of the church is a way or is in one place where we can see the tensions between um, the Catholic and Protestant allegiances that Rene has, and also the tensions between the um, Catholic town and the Protestant Lord really come into view, right? So that's what I'm exploring really in my in my article here. So what evidence do you have to access the story of this church and this community? Right. So I first encountered the Church of St. Madeleine when I was doing my dissertation research in France long ago, well, longer ago than I really want to uh, remember at the moment. I was going through the restoration archives at the Médiathèque de l'Architecture et du Patrimoine, and I had just sort of been going through drawings, as many drawings as I could get my hands on to look at 
flying buttresses, right? Because I was interested at the time in the morphology of flying buttresses and trying to understand their aesthetics and how their aesthetics change over the course of the Middle Ages. And I stumbled upon these drawings of this church that had flying buttresses that didn't look like any other flying buttresses I had ever seen um, in the course of my research. And so I decided I had to go and see these in person. And it was really the unusual form of these flying buttresses that was the initial launching point to my interest in this church and to this um, to this project. And while I was doing my dissertation research, I really didn't have time to explore in depth the circumstances surrounding this one particular example because I was trying to deal with, with really too much um, in the dissertation. So when I finally had some space to delve into this, what I started to do was figure out first more about the construction history of the church and who would have been responsible or likely responsible for the design. And then looking at other works by this architect to see where his inspiration could come from. And the process was hampered a little bit by the destruction of most of the archival material in Montargis. So there aren't very good documents uh, for this. But nevertheless, it does seem pretty uh I'm pretty convinced, at least, that that Ducerceau would have been the architect responsible for the design, specifically of the flying buttresses, likely not for much of the rest of the church, but for the flying buttresses, I think it's pretty clear. And that's um, Jacques-Androuet Ducerceau I. So I looked at, and this is an architect that's primarily uh, known not for his work as an architect in terms of constructing buildings, but primarily as somebody um, for writing treatises and um, drawing architecture, right? Both actual buildings and fantastical buildings um, born of his imagination. So I spent some time looking at his, his other work, and trying to figure out where his interest would have come in. And what struck me is that he really isn't particularly interested in flying buttresses. And I have found very few images by him that depict flying buttresses at all, or even anything that, if you squint, looks like flying buttresses. And while um, some other scholars have suggested that some of his drawings contain similar ornaments to what we see on the flying buttresses at Montargis, in my estimation, these similarities are there, but are minor, right? So the shape of one decorative detail, I'm not um, convinced is necessarily indicative of how he would have been thinking about the entire structural element. Right. Although it may it, it, it does perhaps argue for his role as an author. Right. To have some small decorative details have continuity between his graphic work and this particular built example. And I have to thank my colleague Robert Bork for pointing me specifically to the flying buttresses of the Chateau de Chambord, which do have um, some very similar designs to the flying buttresses at Montarchy. 
And I was very happy to then discover that Du Cerceau drew these flying buttresses, right? So we actually have a drawing that he produced that I think forms a really uh, nice uh, step between the flying buttresses at the chateau, then his rendering of them, and then the final design at Montargis. And maybe it makes uh, sense here to just articulate quickly what makes the flying buttresses at Montargis so unusual. So uh, flying buttresses are a structural device that transmit the lateral thrust of the main vault, usually of a church, over the side aisles into massive buttress piers that are able to resist that lateral thrust through their own inertia. So they are um, fundamentally structural elements that are imperative to the thin-walled, large-windowed structures that are um, emblematic of Gothic ecclesiastical architecture, right, with these huge stained glass windows and very thin diaphanous walls. So most flying buttresses, generally flying buttresses, <clears throat> are composed of steeply inclined arches topped by a straight, a sort of a straight strut that's often used as a water channel, which will lead to a gargoyle, a water spout in the form of a gargoyle. And you might be able to think, for example, of the flying buttresses of Paris Cathedral, right? This is a common example that many people are familiar with. At Montargis, what we see is that the flying buttresses are similar in that they are an external buttressing arch, but they, instead of having this steeply inclined straight strut, they're now configured from identifiable classicizing architectural elements. So we see, for example, a half pediment. We see um, Corinthian columns and ionic pilasters and so on and so forth. So while in the 16th century in France, it was very common, and in fact, increasingly common to see an interest in what I call Italianate neoclassicism, right? So we have, um, for example, Francois I becoming very interested in the Italian Renaissance aesthetic. He has Leonardo da Vinci join him um, in France for the last years of Leonardo's life, right? We see architecture increasingly incorporating classicizing elements like pediments, like antique column forms, so Ionic, um, Corinthian capitals, and so on and so forth. The flying buttresses at Montargis are unusually classicizing for an ecclesiastical building. And I am not aware of any other church that uses classicizing ornamentation and a classicizing configuration to this extent in the flying buttresses. And I think it's also um, then... Uh, Interesting that the closest comparison for these flying buttresses come not from another church, but from a chateau, as I already mentioned, right? So it's 
it's this degree of classicism, the, the inventiveness of forcing what is a medieval and in many ways anti-classical, and here I borrow a language from Marvin Trachtenberg, anti-classical or modernist, right, um, is how uh, Marvin might talk about it, um, element, and then marrying it with these classicizing forms, right, to come up with something that is highly eclectic. And while this eclecticism is is prevalent in 16th century French architecture and French Renaissance architecture, the degree of eclecticism and the degree of classicism at Montargis in the flying buttresses makes them exceptional. And therefore, I think, makes an investigation of their form and the, the stimulus for having such an unusual form really, um, really provocative. Let's get into the, the heart of the matter now. What do these flying buttresses and, and perhaps the, the, the church writ large tell us about the wars of religion? So I actually think that what these buttresses tell us or the way, at least the way I understand these buttresses, is it tells us less about the wars of religion writ large throughout France, and instead they're really evocative about the unusual situation at Montargis with this ruler who is, in this moment, I think in the post-1567 moment, um, striking in her tolerance, Right. So she's really trying to, as, as I understand it, she's really trying to promote an environment that permits the uh, Catholic worship of her citizenry because she's interested in being a good lord. Right. But also permits her to follow her own convictions in practicing Calvinism. Right. So whereas much of France is involved in a really bloody, prolonged conflict. In this small pocket, it seems like Rene is trying to maintain the peace of her little area of jurisdiction. So, for example, at a, a certain point, she rescinds her invitation to Huguenot leaders and also refuses to have the, um, the Catholic troops camping in her area. Right. And it, she justifies this as far as I can remember it in this moment, she justifies this as a way of preventing the, the rape and killing of her citizens. So I think that what we're seeing here in the in the buttresses is that Rene's Protestantism and Ducerceau, who is also a Protestant, by the way, and who is one of the people who Rene was sheltering, right, in her in her chateau, right, sheltering from persecution. So her Protestantism and the Protestantism of her of her architect facilitates a sort of freedom of design to move away from 
traditional architectural practices, which may have resulted hypothetically, which is always dangerous, right? But hypothetically, and something that would look more like a quote unquote medieval or medievalist traditional flying buttress to really reconfigure it as a classical or classicizing architectural element. But at the same time, wanting to maintain some link of that medieval medieval legacy so that what you end up with is a form that both maintains the the sacred symbolism of flying buttresses which are primarily at least in my view associated with ecclesiastical architecture in particular churches so they would have been an expected element by the mid 16th century of church architecture in France, right? So that the flying buttress has its own significance, right? And so that significance in relationship to uh, sacred architecture is maintained, and yet it's changed enough to also suggest a difference from that tradition. Right. So just as Rene is walking this fine line, I think so, too, do the flying buttresses walk this fine line between um, adherence to the the traditional architectural practices of church building and yet allowing Ducerceau to kind of reimagine that. Right. What might that look like moving forward? And if you look at the rest of his um, of his oeuvre, of his graphic work, you can see several images of him trying to rework ecclesiastical buildings. Now, in these cases, they don't have flying buttresses, but it seems like he may have been doing something similar on a small scale. What could a, if I have to have a flying buttress, what could it look like? Right. If I have to have a flying buttress, how can I design it? Um, to be something new. I also think that the design of the flying buttresses at Montargis in being so overtly classicizing and really so clearly hearkening back to uh, inspiration from the antique, right? So being so neo-antique is evocative of something that both Catholics and Protestants are doing in this period, which is going back to the early church, right, as a way of suggesting their own purity. So what I mean here is that both Protestants and Catholics are challenging established traditions by hearkening back to still older traditions. I think this is really interesting. I think there's actually a lot of space here to explore um, in a lot more depth than uh, about how both Catholics and Protestants are using late antique and early Christian traditions to justify and promote their own ideologies. And I think one way we might be able to understand the integration of classicizing motifs in ecclesiastical architecture is to look at how theologians are understanding this, um, this early Christian architecture.
So how do these findings then affect our understanding of architecture during the Reformation and during the 16th century? That's an interesting question. So again, I'm going to preface this by saying that my primary research area is not Reformation architecture. And there are other scholars like Andrew Spicer, for example, who have written much more extensively on this topic and whose research I really relied on for understanding and contextualizing Montargy within its larger architectural tradition. But one of the things that struck me as I was working through this literature and trying to figure out where these, to my mind, really peculiar flying buttresses would fit is that it seems like um, there is now uh, a pretty well-established understanding of differences between the interiors of Catholic and Protestant churches, right? So in my article, for example, I illustrate these two anonymous German woodcuts of the true image of the papal church and the true image of the ancient apostolic church, right? So one representing the Catholic tradition, Catholic architectural tradition, and one, the Protestant tradition. And what you can see in these two, um, in these two engravings is that the division of space is really different. So in the Protestant church, you have a more open central space where there is better access to the pulpit, right, where there is less hierarchy, where the architectural setting is perhaps less conducive to the elaborate liturgical ceremonies that would have been practiced in a Catholic church in which we know people like Calvin uh, really objected to, right? Whereas in the Catholic church, you still have a very hierarchicalized space and you have a, a placement of the high altar that really uh, is given prominence to particular areas of the church and to particular views, right? So it really gives precedence to the clergy um, over the, the laity. What I hope my contribution or what I hope one of my contributions is with this article is to think about how these differences in Protestant and Catholic architecture might extend to the exterior of the church, right? So if I am correct, or at least if it is reasonable to talk about flying buttresses as a traditional church element that would have been understood in connection to the Catholic church, right? And then that the, um, suppression of things like flying buttresses in Protestant architecture, right, would have been something that would signal the difference of Protestant worship vis-a-vis Catholic worship, then I think it, again, in looking at the particular form of the flying buttresses at Montargis becomes really powerful as a way of thinking about how do Cerceau, perhaps in conversation with Renee, although how much agency she would have had in the architectural design is unclear, um, would have uh, would have made something, would have designed something that would both uh, appease the Catholic citizenry, but at the same time been different enough, right, to signal signal a break. Right. 
And I, I again, think there's a lot of interesting work that could be done about thinking a, a, about how the exterior of Protestant churches and most of the um, uh, the Huguenot churches in France, are, of course, destroyed. So it's difficult to have access to them. You have to rely primarily on graphic evidence and descriptions and stuff like that. But think about how the exterior of these buildings would have been understood within the landscape. And I'm, I'm hoping that thinking about these flying buttresses is one way to to enter into that discussion. Well, Dr. Hutter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and to, to share your research with my listeners. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. With the close of the academic year in the U.S., Agnes will be on break until September, but I've got some pretty exciting interviews lined up for when we return, and I can't wait. As always, you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, awe atque wale. <laughs>